Did you ever hear of Kong? Why, yes. Some native superstition, isn't it? A god or a spirit or something. Well, anyway, neither beast nor man. Something monstrous, all-powerful, still living, still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. Well, every legend has a basis of truth. Welcome to Now Playing's King Kong Retrospective Series. I'm offering him adventure, fame, the thrill of a lifetime, and a long sea voyage. Well, I don't see how you can be amused by gorillas. I think they're dull. Well, this one's 60 feet tall. What do you think of him? 60 feet? That's right. This is Kong, the strongest living creature on Earth. Hosted by Stuart. I, I, I was just afraid that you might be one of those self-obsessed literary types. The Tweety Twerp with his nose in this book. Jacob. I'm on the level. No funny business. Trust me and keep your chin up. And Arnie. Here we are. Just one big happy family. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Are you sure about this? Our primates too. Listener discretion is advised. It's time to show Kong that man is king. We hope you enjoy the show. Lights, cameras, Kong. Today we're discussing King Kong, starring Naomi Watts, Jack Black, Adrian Brody, Thomas Kretschmann, Colin Hanks, Jamie Bell, Evan Park, Lobo Chan, Kyle Chandler, and Andy Serkis, directed by Peter Jackson. This is the now playing host who's sitting on top of the world, Arnie. Ed Stewart. I'm just a podcaster with a gun who's lost his motivation. This is Jacob. At last, a King Kong movie made by Universal Studios. They've owned him for decades and did nothing but build those animatronic rides. King Kong Encounter in summer of 1986, Confrontation in 1990. They weren't interested in a movie. Why would you need to revive that old thing? And then they made Jurassic Park. And the whole disaster movie explosion happened in the 90s all over again. Suddenly we had the White House being blown up by aliens, a giant meteor coming, volcano in downtown L.A. Oh, hate that one. J-Lo got eaten by an anaconda. Love that one. (laughs) But, you know... Why not Kong? Kong is another form of that. It had been 10 years since King Kong lives. Everyone's forgotten how awful it was. We have a script already. Bo Goldman's script is lying around from 1976. All we need is a director. And we got this guy, Peter Jackson. He's supposed to be the next thing in genre filmmaking. He's making a little ghost movie called Frighteners for Us. Maybe he's the perfect guy for reviving Kong. That obviously didn't happen because he did the Frighteners and then... He spent like a decade in Middle Earth. Yes, he was signed on. He said yes. It took some doing. At first, they actually offered him Creature from the Black Lagoon. They were like, do that one. He's like, nah, there's nothing that. And that reboot has never happened. They've never remade that creature. I think he loses his monster status, right? At this point, that one's just not <laughs> as good as Frankenstein and Dracula. It's a cool design, but what does he do? He just swims, I guess, the backstroke. 
they're starting the universal monster thing again. No, really? because they've sold off the Invisible Man to Blumhouse. Yeah, that's why they're doing the Invisible Woman themselves. Oh, wow. Give up. You failed twice. So Tom Cruise is not going to be the mummy ever again? No. Okay. So, I, listen, at some point they're going to have rebooted them all, and the Black Lagoon's going to start looking pretty welcoming. Okay. Well, Jackson said absolutely no to Black Lagoon, and they said Kong, and he actually had to pause because it was his favorite movie. Like, it's to him what Star Wars is to Gen X or probably Lord of the Rings is to millennials. It was like, oh, when I saw that, I realized what movie making was and I wanted to be a part of it. Jackson, you know, we've talked about him. We've covered Lord of the Rings. We covered Hobbit. And Arnie, you even covered the Frighteners in our book. He was a very different kind of filmmaker prior to any of those films. I think that when we talk of him, we think of him being this big, illustrious special effects guy. Nope, Meet the Feebles will always be close to my heart, his X-rated Muppet movie. Yeah, yeah, he started in some really, like, Sam Raimi, scatological horror comedy, low-budget stuff there back in New Zealand. To put it in perspective, The Frighteners was supposed to be a Tales from the Crypt movie, like Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood. And because Bordello of Blood didn't do very well, they just made it a standalone. But that's horror comedy. That's lighthearted. That's not a four-hour epic. Right. You know, it's interesting. He didn't even really want to be a film director or screenwriter. He wanted to be a special effects guy. So, yeah, he cobbled together what he could because Weta didn't exist down under. And so, yeah, he made these movies where people disappeared and got eaten by their mother's vagina and puppets had sex with one another and all the scatological stuff. And then it changed for him. He ended up writing about a true crime that happened in New Zealand called Heavenly Creatures, and it really blew up for him and his leading lady, Kate Winslet. It got Peter Jackson his first Oscar nomination for screenplay, and it also got Kate Winslet Titanic. So it is this stepping stone movie that I think changed him from being the scatological horror comedy guy into somebody that would make big lavish epics and all of that but yes frighteners was in between and frighteners at the point that they greenlit king kong hadn't come out yet the reason why they didn't make peter jackson's kong back in 1997 is when frighteners came out it was kind of a flop and the script that he produced was kind of big i mean it was going to be very expensive and different than the movie we're here to talk about now It wasn't like he wrote the film that we're here for. His conception originally was Raiders of the Lost Ark. What he was going to do was have George Clooney play Jack, the down-on-his-luck World War II flying ace, who joins an archaeological dig. And that dig is being conducted by some famed old anthropologist and his lovely blonde daughter, Anne, played by Kate Winslet. She would come back and work with Peter Jackson again. And then Robert De Niro was the documentary filmmaker, Carl Denham, that was recording their dig. And so really, they were going around finding relics and all of this, and it would be about them unearthing the lost religion of an ape god, which had spread throughout the South Pacific until more traditional religions kind of suppressed the Kong cult, and they had the proof, and some of these suppressors like came and killed the archaeologist. You get it. It's all Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff. And Kong is much more of the Ark of the Covenant. They eventually find the map, 
and they're like, we got to go find this, and they're building more to that climax, and you really don't know what it's going to be like. But yeah, they eventually get him, they get him even to the Empire State Building, and Jack, rather than firing on him, gets on a plane and protects Kong when other planes come to shoot at him. Because he was a World War One ace, he actually shoots down the planes that were going to shoot down Kong. So, different movie, in lots of different ways. Different in spirit, different Kong design, and a movie that Universal decided it wasn't worth the price tag, and we're very grateful for when sister film Godzilla with Matthew Broderick came out and bombed. I'm going to say, before this podcast is over, Peter Jackson will have revisited that ending. No, okay. Well... At any rate, yes, Jackson probably, more than anyone, is grateful they said no to him. Because what it meant was he turned and shopped his other idea, those Tolkien books, and tried to find somebody to fund that. And, of course, the rest is history there. New Line, bitch. They made all three back-to-back. They became enormous cultural phenomenons, made him tons of money, all of the Oscars. And so, in 2003, he is able to do whatever he wants... And Universal says, okay, how about we revive Kong? Why don't you do it however you want? Three hour length, 175 million budget, recreate New York down in New Zealand, whatever you want to do, shoot half a year. You have the power now and we believe in you more than we did a decade ago. Make your Kong. He was a very different Peter Jackson, though. He did not return from Middle Earth the same man who went to Middle Earth. Yeah, I think that was partly why he was looking at his old script and being like, you know, I don't relate to this. And I do relate more to the idea of this big chaotic film set and all these people getting back really to the roots of the 1933 story, making Carl Denham a megalomaniac film director who has an artistic vision that's going to drag all these people into danger. Probably felt like what it was day by day filming those Lord of the Ring movies. It was just a concept that he could relate to more. I think he was happy to revise the script entirely, throw everything that he had written out and come up with what we're here to talk about today, which is an interesting film because I feel like people love Peter Jackson, but I've never known too many people to love this movie. I guess I'll tip my hand a little bit because I... I won't say I love it, but when we were coming up with what movies we're going to do for our underrated book, like there was a discussion. What if something was a huge hit, but no one actually likes it? And that's kind of how I feel like the legacy of 2005 Kong is like everyone saw it and everyone's like, eh, no, I don't really like it. And so I did feel like it was underrated for that reason. Yeah, no, I think it's a valid complaint. It's not hated. It made half a billion dollars. So it was no flop, but underrated it might be because I heard grumbling. I saw it with Lord of the Rings super fans, and yeah, they were just like, meh. You know, they tried. I could see them trying to be it. It's just not the same thing. You can't have the same experience going to Middle Earth that you do to Skull Island. And I think that, yeah, it won some technical Oscars. It broke even in America. But when all was said and done, passion. Like, there was just no desire to crown this best picture, best director, one of my favorite films. I never saw it. I was aware of it, and I had some interest in it, but Marjorie hated The Lord of the Rings. Not that it was anything against Peter Jackson, but she just didn't groove to the length of those films or the tone of those films. So she didn't want to go see King Kong. I ended up not going without her, and I didn't hear anyone saying it was a must-see, but I ended up, the next year, 2006, 
I owned not one but two copies of this movie because <laughs> I bought an HD DVD player for my Xbox 360. Do you guys remember those? Yeah, they were the maroon cases, not the blue ones. Uh-huh, and you could buy an HD DVD player or a Blu-ray player. They were competing. HD DVD was an open source format, you know, like DVD. Anybody could do it. Blu-ray was owned by Sony. Every Blu-ray produced gets a quarter in Sony's coffers, okay? So everybody was really kind of pushing for HD DVD. Mm. But what one for the Blu-ray is every PlayStation 3 that came out had a Blu-ray drive in it. But the Xbox 360 came with a DVD drive. So Microsoft, trying to help the HD DVD, came out with an additional drive. So you had to connect it on the back like an old peripheral and have a second box sitting next to your Xbox that could play HD DVDs. They're obviously not made anymore. This they form- died the next year. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was like, how long did it last? And not very long. Okay. Did you like buy one of each of Kong to compare them to see which format you liked best? No. What happened was if you bought the Xbox 360 player, you got King Kong with it. But I waited and got a Black Friday deal where it was marked down at Best Buy and you got to mail away for five more HD DVD movies. I got Enemy at the Gates and I got King Kong. But I was actually really excited because I'd gotten an HD TV and I was going to get to watch King Kong in this new HD format. And none of the ones that were mailed to me got watched at all. And now I still own them and can't sell them for a dollar at a flea market because nobody has a player. So I have two copies to this day of King Kong in HD DVD. Both on HD. Okay. But to watch it for this review, I had to go out and get a 4K Blu-ray because I can't (laughs) play HD DVDs anymore either. And to be clear, you didn't see it in theaters and you haven't seen it until this week. Yeah. My two HD DVDs. Never even got on shrink wrapped. <laughs> this was my first time ever seeing this movie 15 years after I bought it. Yeah, well, that's fun. And I did see this one in theaters. I didn't go weekend of release. I went the second or third week. And it was in a theater. You remember when theaters weren't all stadium seating? They were all kind of almost flat. They kind of just gently sloped down. It was one of those old theaters. We still have one here. We have some here. I don't know if they've changed or not. I don't go to them. I go to the ones with the recliners and the nice seatings. But awful experience, not because of the movie, but because I had a child behind me who heard that there were bats in this film and kept asking his dad when are the bats coming i'm scared i don't want to see them the bats show up around the two hour mark so i had to listen to that about every five (laughs) minutes him ask his dad when the bats were coming so you're saying he was driving you batshit crazy yes you can say that and what really drove me crazy is when he then spilled his huge soda and it ran down and and covered my feet and (laughs) oh my god I will separate my experience from this film, though. But I've watched this one a few times. I bought this when it came out on DVD. I've seen it a few times. Like I said, I was considering putting it in the book, so I have some affection for it. And I also had a bad theatrical experience and never did go back. But I, again, was friends with a Lord of the Rings super fan. They had to go see it at L.A. Cinerama Dome, which, if you've ever been, it's a wraparound screen. It's kind of a unique experience. Don't you lay on your back at that place? The screen's so big? Not that one. That's Omnimax. But yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's a unique experience, and it, there's only one in town. It's right there, uh, the Hollywood area. They only had tickets for the midnight showing. 
And this is not a movie you want to start <laughs> at midnight. Yeah, get home at about 6 a.m. It was only because the sound was so loud of that eight screaming that I was like still awake at three in the morning. I was just like, please, I want to go to bed. And so in my mind, it was the movie that was putting me to sleep, although I didn't give it a chance. All right, I'll be honest, that happened to me too. I watched this movie, I started it a little later than I should have, and the only thing keeping me awake was all the monsters roaring. So I hit stop, <laughs> went to bed, and rewatched it the next day and had a much better experience when I wasn't attempting to fall asleep to the monsters roar. And I think it also hurts that I haven't really liked Peter Jackson since. That he ended up making, I think, the worst film of his career after King Kong with Lovely Bones. And then Hobbit, that whole hype for the high frame rate ended up being a real bust i didn't even like that movie with the world war one footage that he colorized like it felt like kong was him falling off the empire state building and splattering i feel like he lost his clout after this movie that this movie torpedoed the momentum that return of the king gave him now that's my impression i realize many people still love everything he does but not for me but this did make half a billion dollars. I mean, it's not like this was a financial failure that made it so Hollywood didn't want to work with them. Yeah, but it also cost $200 million, and once you add up all of that stuff, that's a little better than breaking even. To put it in perspective, Return of the King did make a billion dollars. So this did half of what this is. But it's King Kong versus the end of a trilogy. And King Kong, I gotta ask, was there love for Kong in 05? I mean, I remembered liking the 70s one. I kind of wanted to see it. The fact that he was fighting dinosaurs intrigued me. Again, as if you didn't listen to our 33 review, I had no idea there were dinosaurs in King Kong. <laughs> and so the fact that he was fighting them, King Kong met Jurassic Park kind of sounded exciting. Yeah, and I thought this was the first time King Kong was getting remade since 1933. I didn't know about the 70s ones. I didn't know about the Japanese ones. So this was exciting for me because I do like that 1933 one. That was the one I watched when I was a kid. So yeah, to see a big budget, modern special effects. Yeah. Let's see what they could do. Yeah, they definitely hyped it. I mean, there were action figures. There were dolls. They pushed this like this was going to be a cultural phenomenon. But again, I think that's part of the reason why it feels like a souffle that didn't rise. It's like, oh, we had such expectations and it just ended up being another movie. Yeah, keep in mind, 2005, when this came out, was the year Revenge of the Sith came out. I had to keep reminding myself Revenge of the Sith didn't have the greatest CGI as I watched this. Because I was like, this won a visual effects award? But in 05, I guess it was pretty good. And I remember being in the toy aisles, seeing all the Star Wars toys, and yeah, there were the King Kong toys, and no one was buying. And they ended up on clearance. And again, the complaint was too long. Why would you take a movie that was an hour and 40 minutes and double it? Is there a need to expand everything to epic size? Is this just Peter Jackson unable to tell a simple story anymore? The joke was the year later when it appeared in Blu-ray format, they had two versions. You could watch it theatrical or extended because it's even longer. And that's what the movie needed. <laughs> Which version have you guys seen? I watched the extended one for this review. I, like I said, I've seen the theatrical one three or four times. And so, yeah, why not watch the extended one with even more stuff in there? Though I think it only ends up being about 20 minutes longer. I was thinking it was going to be an hour longer, like those Lord of the Rings special editions. I was hiding from an extended edition, also thinking it was going to have an extra hour of stuff. Rarely does Peter Jackson going longer make me like the film better. But when I saw there was only, yeah, 15 minutes or so of difference, I decided, what the hell, I'll watch the extended cut just so 
I can see what few scenes are scattered around. I understand there's a lot of stuff still not in it. Like there's an hour of deleted scenes. Yeah, I watched them. That is the mystery. Of, I was like, if anything, the theatrical cut should be an hour shorter for this extended version to feel like it brings anything. I mean, we're talking about the Triceratops attacks, an extended scene in the water with the sea creature, and a little bit more of Kong running around New York. No storylines have been added. Nothing in extended gives you new storylines. When you watch the deleted scenes, you see a whole lot more that was planned for supporting characters that kind of get the short shrift in both versions that were released commercially. And I think the reason why they didn't include some of that stuff is the effects work wasn't done. And had the movie been a huge hit, they like Lord of the Rings. Okay, we'll go back. We'll finish the effects. We'll release it as a four-hour movie. But there's just not that desire. It seems that the commercial appetite for Kong tops out at three hours, 12 minutes. But you can find out some of the stuff that's not even filmed, not even in the movie, if you pick up the official prequel novel, which I hunted down. King Kong, The Island of the Skull. This is a prose novel, like 300 pages of words on paper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The surprise is Kong's not in it at all. It is an origin story for the map. The map? If you wanted to know how (laughs) the filmmakers got a map to Skull Island, you can find it here. It starts with the Kong Bride. And this was actually kind of cool. It was actually my favorite part of the book. Like, there was one Kong Bride that got smart, and she, like, greased the restraints and escaped her chains before the big ape showed up, ran away, came across some pearl divers that had come to Skull Island because, hey, everything is bigger here, including the oysters. You got big pearls. They run around from some dinosaurs, find a cave with a map inside. One of those divers turns it into the map and kind of falls in love with this girl. Dinosaurs eat most of these people, but eventually you follow that map until it lands in the hand of Carl Denham, who is shooting a movie, and you meet his cameraman, Herb, who loses his leg to a sea lion. I don't think you see in either cut of this movie (laughs) that he's a one-legged cameraman. No, I didn't notice. No, was he supposed to be one-legged? Did he have a big leg? Yeah, well, in deleted scenes, you definitely see that. Jackson will tell you in certain shots you can see him walking funny. But I never picked it up until I read this novel. He's an old guy. I just thought he was old. Yeah, exactly. They also feel they need to throw in a storyline for hungry actress Anne Darrow in this book. They want to show why she might have a soft heart for animals. And so they show her trying to get a job in Atlantic City on the Steel Pier. This is a true attraction. They actually had daredevils who would get astride a horse and then jump into a tank of water. And she got that job, fell in love with this frail horse who was too sick to be jumping. But the greedy mobsters that run the pier made her dive anyway. And the horse dies in a vague Kong-like manner. And so you can kind of see that she's traumatized at the beginning of this movie because she loves animals so much and people are cruel and hurt them and exploit them. Not essential storytelling and not particularly well written. But again, it shows you that there was a lot of ideas. Some of this came from material that was in the inflated script that they had here and that Peter Jackson was thinking big when he was making Kong. I just got one question because it's as much as stuff, backstory, expanding on characters that Jackson's going to add to this film. What is a Bride of Kong? Does that get explained what Kong is going to be doing with these brides? 
I don't know if I totally got it all from the novel. You know, I did do a deep dive. I didn't even do all of the extra materials. The man has so many diaries on production. I think as many days as they shot, as as many hours as they were there, you can watch it. Like, you could just live stream (laughs) him making that movie. I gave up after several hours, but I did watch a lot of the behind the scenes. And yes, I get a sense that what they were trying to do with the Kong Bride. We could talk about it, I guess, when we get into the movie. Okay. But Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? It should be pretty familiar to folks at this point. Yeah, for this one, I looked. I wanted to see, do I even have to say it again, or can I just copy and paste from our 1933 review? It's pretty close. It is pretty close, but there are a couple minor differences, so I will recite it again. The movie is set in 1933, and Jack Black plays troubled movie director Carl Denham, who has stolen his latest film and fled overseas to complete the picture. But he needs an actress to be the love interest. He meets unemployed vaudeville performer Anne Darrow, played by Naomi Watts, who is attractive and the right size to fit the already-made costume. She agrees to go when she discovers that the film is written by playwright Jack Driscoll, played by Adrian Brody. They set sail, and during the voyage... Anne and Jack fall in love. It turns out Denham has led the crew to an island not on any map, Skull Island. When they arrive on the island, the natives there attack, killing some of the crew, and the survivors return to the ship. The natives follow them back to the ship. The natives follow them back to the ship and kidnap Anne, taking her behind a giant wall and tying her up. Then Kong appears, a 25-foot gorilla, mo-capped by Andy Serkis. Kong takes Anne into the island jungle. Driscoll, Denim, and others go to rescue Anne, and on the island, they discover dinosaurs. Seeing these giant creatures, Denim becomes more focused on getting these oddities on film to make a hit movie, and less focused on making sure Anne survives. Between Kong, dinosaurs, and giant insects, most of the men are killed, and Denim loses his film. Anne is also attacked by giant beasts, but Kong fights and kills them, defending his blonde bride. Eventually, Driscoll reaches Anne and saves her, and while Kong gives chase, Denim knocks out the giant ape with a bottle of chloroform. With dollar signs in his eyes, Denim takes Kong back to New York to be his new attraction, the eighth wonder of the world. He has a gala premiere night filled with press to unveil Kong to New York City, but the flashbulbs of the press irritate Kong and he breaks his chrome steel chains. Yes, the chrome steel chains are back. (laughs) I noticed that. (laughs) That's not all of why he rebels. He's also a little pissed at Anne. Kong searches New York until he finds Anne. When the army attacks the giant gorilla, Kong grabs Anne and climbs to the top of the Empire State Building. The ape is attacked by airplanes and shot, and Kong falls to his death, and Jack and Anne are reunited, and Denim ignores all the bullet holes in Kong and says, It was beauty killed the beast, and credits roll. Yeah, a lot similar. There's no doubt about it. That was Jackson in thinking about what he wrote in 96-97 till filming in 2004. Yeah, I think the experience of having been in an arduous film shoot made him want to talk about that experience, want him to get back to Denim's film production being the reason why we go to Skull Island. And I also just think he wanted a movie with more heart. I mean, he did, after all, win an Oscar It isn't just because it's an action movie. It's also because people love the characters, love the drama and the pathos of it. And I think he wanted to push that envelope. I think he wanted to retain a dramatic sensibility. Which is ironic because when we meet Anne, all she wants to do is make people laugh. And I like what they do with Anne here. They actually develop her in... 
Feyre was great with that scream, but she was a scream queen. Here, Anne is an actual character. Like, she's going to have motivation. She's going to have traits. She's a vaudevillian actor. Right. She's a chaplain drag trying to get whatever laugh she can. And I think that she will be typified that when she gets discovered by Denim, you know, he calls her the saddest girl in the world, but she doesn't want to be that. It's the depression. We see from this opening montage, everyone is in squalor. There's no reason to wade into that mire and be sad. She sees herself as heroic because she's trying to lift people up. And this is a nice bit of backstory. We've had complaints about characterization in the previous two or three three if you count the king kong origin king kong versus godzilla in all of those we found the characters a little bit flat here i'll just put my cards on the table this movie's too long overall it is too long but i actually my complaints previously have been it takes too long to get to the island here i don't really have that problem but one of the benefits of the length is we do get and we meet her before she's stealing the apple. We see that her vaudeville show is closed down. We see her trying to get a meeting with a playwright who maybe would hire her. And we even get to see this father figure for her who's when the vaudeville show closes down. is like, well, that's it for me. I'm going back to Chicago. She even gets me too. The only job she could get is at a burlesque show. Right. Yes. She is trying to deal with the fact that she can't work anymore. She was the star of that show. Her name was above the title at that little theater, but now that didn't work out. So is she really going to go strip? Yeah. Is she really going to show off her assets to try and make ends meet? This character is unique because she is going to face the depression and say, no, there are things that I'm not willing to do, even though I'm desperate. So I'll steal an apple, but I won't work at a burlesque show. And I'm not sure I want to get on a boat with this Carl Denham, who we have intercut here, played by Jack Black. When I saw Jack Black was in this movie, I just immediately knew he was going to be the Charles Grodin character who Kong steps on at the end, right? Because Jack (laughs) Black usually plays kind of slimy characters. I, of course, didn't realize Denim survived the original 33 King Kong, but I felt this entire movie, I was waiting for Jack Black to be stepped on. I would have been okay with it. You know, sometimes I like Jack Black. He's very modern. He's a very modern performer, and you can find the right irritating role for him, and he can really shine. But here, they have him in Orson Welles' hair. They're really trying to make that comparison that he is this young, very talented filmmaker who's also reckless with budgets. He's less the Marion Cooper of the original and more like, yeah, the guy that made Citizen Kane, only he hasn't proven himself yet. That ain't Jack Black. Like, Jack Black is not good in this film. Yeah, I think this is a miscast here. And I like Jack Black when he's doing comedy. He's got his own YouTube channel that I find very funny, the stuff he does on there. But I'm waiting for him to be more boisterous. He's kind of mellowed out for this role. That's how he's going to play it, more serious. And I just don't think it fits him. I want him to be louder and brasher and be more Jack Black if you're going to cast him in, in this film. Jack Black doesn't have a whole lot of range. And yes, they're asking him to do things dramatically that he's just out of his wheelhouse and it's even worse in the cut scene i'm convinced some of the reasons why the scenes are cut is because he dramatically drops the ball he's just not any good and i like him in these beginning scenes i like him as the director who's gone rogue he's filmed and spent all their money and has nothing to show for it and they're like where's the story oh we haven't filmed that yet i need more money we're gonna go to this island and film I love that the producers just want to sell whatever stuff
stuff he shot as stock footage. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of faith there. And so, yeah, I agree. This is in his wheelhouse. Being a devilish person that's going to steal the reels and jump on a ship and try and finish the movie with no money in the bank. Like he's telling everyone, I'm writing you checks and they're going to bounce if they ever do cash them. That's Jack Black and that's fun. But the other stuff. The idea that he's a crazy visionary along the lines of, yeah, like a Marlon Brando is really kind of where they needed to go with this. Apocalypse Now. The fact that he's so delusional. They'll make Heart of Darkness comparison. That he is so driven to his artistic vision that he's willing to put everyone's life into peril. I don't get that mania from him. I get it that he's trying. I get it in his lines. I get it in his eyes. But I never believe it. Well, yes, yeah. that's what I mean. That's what I'm really saying, Arnie. <laughs> yeah, I get that they're telling me this is who he is, but it's unconvincing. And the other thing is, because they are making him that character, is again why I felt like he was going to get stepped on. He's not bad enough for that. He's kind of too light. He's too much of of lightweight for you to hate. But his entire actions caused the death of so many people that him being stepped on feels appropriate. That's the thing. I'm trying to read the subtext here. Does Peter Jackson see himself as this Jack Black character because... Yeah, he's this crazy visionary and he's going to steal those reels and he's going to make his crazy jungle movie with giant dinosaurs and everything and, and do this gorilla shoot, no pun intended, but I guess it is, the, a gorilla shoot where he's just carrying this camera around, getting whatever footage he can, and the studio's ex hate him. But yeah, like you guys said, he's going to cause a lot of damage in New York. So he ends up not being, you know, like, don't follow that vision. And, and so I, I'm getting a hard time because it feels like there's commentary going on about what it takes to make a movie, but Carl Denham's not a good guy in this. Bad results happen from him. I'm sure that he sees what he was trying to do, making three pictures back to back when his most famous film is a flop he made for Universal. And Jack Black even said, yeah, I looked at Orson Welles, but I also based some of this performance on just watching Peter Jackson. So yes, this is a stand-in for Peter Jackson here, trying to get the movie made at all costs. And we're leaving now because, because I've stolen the reels. They're sending the cops for me, but we need a female female elite. Maureen McKenzie has backed out, and so we have a costume that Mae West is not going to fit into, and Faye Ray is off doing a picture with RKO. I like that line that Carl was the one directing it. I mean, this movie is nearly a Gus Van Zandt psycho remake of King Kong if Gus Van Zandt decided to make Psycho twice as long, but there's also nice little illusions and nods to the original King Kong, such as this mention of Fay Ray. Well, it's meta. It's suddenly, yeah, we know that simultaneously in this world, there is the King Kong movie being made, and now here are these people living it. And we'll later have people on the ship making comparisons to this and Joseph Conrad. So yes, it's hyper-aware of the stories that have been told and what is its place in that camp. That makes sense because this is Universal Pictures King Kong. They've constantly been trying to make one at the same time as other people. Yes, and failing. But here it is. And again, it's a lavish vision. We're seeing a New York that was mostly done on a soundstage in New Zealand. Even if you went to New York, it wouldn't look like this. It would take even more money to try and set decorate and take away the modern to bring us back to this 1933 vision. But yes, this is largely a 
computer-generated world. And there is an artificial, nostalgic quality to this movie that Jackson is just embracing. Even though it's the Depression and it's kind of grimy, I mostly get the sense this auburn glow of fantasy and nostalgia and love for the retro. Like, I don't think he would ever consider modernizing this story. What's funny to me is the style. Back in the 30s, if you've been to the Empire State and things, Art Deco was very much the order of the day. And the Empire State Building itself is still very Art Deco. But here, because everything is CGI'd, it somehow feels like Art Deco squared. You know, like the lights are hitting just so to emphasize the angles and the shadows of it. It in a way reminded me of like Sucker Punch or one of those Snyder films where you can tell nothing is real going on there, 300. But I liked it better than either of those examples because it felt like a painting, you know, it felt like an artist's idealized view of 30s New York. I liked it. Yeah, it's a fairy tale. This is not going for realism. They're not trying to get you to the real 1933's Depression era at all. There is a twinkle in everyone's eye, and they're creating a fantasy. And so when he meets Anne, he steps out of the taxi, and he sees her hemming and hawing about whether she shall go into the burlesque. He does what Marion Cooper did previously. He buys her a cup of coffee, uh, buys the apple that she tried to shoplift. But it is different this time. She is someone that doesn't sign on right away. Hungry as she was, desperate as she was, she was not wanting to go do something that might put her in a compromising position. Once he starts asking about her dress size, she thinks he's a creep. She doesn't want to be the saddest girl he's ever met in some movie. And it's only because it's being written by Jack Driscoll that she says yes. She says yes because she's a fan of this playwright who seems to be based a little bit on Eugene O'Neill, would have been a popular playwright at this time. Ah, Wilderness, Tender is the Night. Uh, that's who they're kind of going for. I don't know if people know that playwright or not. But same time period, same kind of story here. Mostly wrote dramas, but did have a few comedies as well. Adrian Brody is playing that character, and I'm going to give it this movie this unconventional casting all around. Now, Naomi Watts is probably the most conventional hire here. She was having her moments, right? She'd had the ring. She'd come off Mulholland Drive. This was probably the apex of her mainstream popularity. Yeah, she even had an Oscar nomination with 21 Grams. And then you get Jack Black. We've talked about how he's anachronistic in this period piece. But Adrian Brody is the world's most unlikely action hero, isn't he? And this movie almost feels like it exists to abuse Adrian Brody. Yeah, whenever he shows up to be an action hero, like, didn't he do that in the Predators? Like, he was supposed to be a tough guy that was going to take on these aliens that could kill anything? I'm not buying it. Here, they're going to ease you into action mode, Adrian Brody, which I guess I could buy more. You know, he is a dramatic actor, and Jackson's going for a lot of dramatic moments, so I buy him as a writer, and because, yeah, they're, they're going to slowly move him to action mode, I could accept him here more than I ever did in Predators. Yeah, I don't think he's an action star here or, or anywhere, but 
But yes, we'll not speak anymore about Predator 3. <laughs> but yeah, he is covering his moment as well. He had won the Oscar. No one expected him to for The Pianist. And so he was looking for lead roles. He has an unconventional face. And so it's not always the most obvious thing of what to do. But he also, when he won his Oscar, he did that thing with Halle Berry where he grabbed her and kissed her. And he's a lover boy. Like, he's kind of a cad. He's dangerous. He plays with his sexuality in a way that you would lean into that. And so what I get here is that this is a writer who, yes, uh, has a deep romantic side that doesn't always come through in his maudlin plays. And this woman that he's going to write for brings that softness out on him. It's subtext that she will make text. And he is here on the boat as they're loading up, hoping to get off. Yeah, I love that he's sitting in a cage trying to write when he's on this boat. And we mentioned it with 76 Kong. How did they get Kong back? I like that Jackson. Okay, they're going to do a, a real clumsy, obvious shot of some chloroform to set that up. But just the fact that this boat, as we're going around trying to get it to take off before the police show up. Yeah, they're mentioning, oh yeah, we catch exotic animals. You want a camel? What do you want? A white rhino? We could get you that. They're setting little things up. So when you think back, hey, how do they get a big monkey? on there and transport well they, they got cages they got chloroform they, they specialize in that and i do love the scene of jack black stalling to keep adrian brody on the boat keep and... putting the wrong date on the checks and yeah yeah that is comedy that's working for me i'm really into the movie more than any other king kong as they set sail for the voyage and i think what jackson's giving this that no other kong has given is urgency Carl Denham has to get the hell out of town because he's stolen the reels of film. The cops are coming for him. The producers who give him the money are coming for him. He is setting sail faster than expected, and it creates excitement in New York, whereas previously it had just been set up in New York. Yeah, I mean, these things were kind of there. Some of the, Many of the elements were there in 1933, but you're absolutely right. There's a ticking clock now, and they're trying to outrun cops. And it's funny to think, how long is this con artist going to get away with this before everyone realizes he's telling them lies? And if there's a casualty in this first setup here, it is Colin Hanks. He is mostly in the deleted scenes. You may not even notice that he's in the movie. But yes, he is the personal assistant to Dennis. Him, and I believe he's really there to be the moral compass. He is always there to try and point out the fact, and it still comes through, I think, in, in the final cut, but that this character risks hurting a lot of people with his vision. And he does his best to try and soothe the bruised egos and people that are working and, and dealing with Denim. Yeah, I, I definitely feel in the extended cut that they use Colin Hanks a lot more to, and he'll just give looks, kind of like his dad, just gives those looks with the crinkled eyebrows and wrinkled forehead and all that, and that tells you everything, what he's thinking, what he thinks of the situation when, like, Carl Denham's, like, secretly filming guys getting eaten by sea monsters and that in the extended version. Yeah, but in the cut scenes, and again, if they had really made a true extended cut and added all that deleted material, like, you would find that he actually finds the map, he confronts Denham about it, all the getting to the island actually kind of changes. It's kind of muddy the way that it actually happens here. You'll see, because they also, not only are they introducing a film crew, they also have to introduce the crew of the ship. And that is really the problem, is that the crew of the ship, it isn't their movie. We can say that this is a movie about a movie, but it's not a movie about sailors. And so when we have to get this German captain who chloroforms animals to sell them to zoos, or God help us, Hayes and the stowaway Jimmy monologuing about 
about the metaphorical meaning of Heart of Darkness, that does not help this film at all. We talked about the crew in the 1976 version where, oh, it was a cool setup, but they didn't really do anything with them. Here, Jackson, he does try to do something with them, but I agree with you, Stuart. It's, yeah, it's some monologues. It, it never really gels to sell anything with Jimmy and Hayes, but there was an attempt. They are as bad as King Kong lives. I'm sorry, but this ship captain's a joke. Are you a lion or a chimpanzee? Remember Udo Kier in Wing Commander? That's who I was thinking of every time that captain opened his mouth. And then Hayes is no better with that exposition. He likes it down here. It's where I found him years ago in the bat cages. He was wilder than half the animals in here. He still won't tell me where he came from, but it wasn't any place good. This is bad writing and worse acting. This is gorilla shit on that boat. It is really, really bad. Okay, well, you hate it more than I do, but we're in the same camp that I don't feel like it's helping this movie. What it tries to do is offer some kind of postmodern commentary, but it doesn't work because they're trying to get to the heart of darkness. But the problem is, that's the expose. Up to that point, people believed you got on a boat and it was this amazing adventure. And this is something that says, no, people are being exploited and we're robbing them of their minerals and, and we ourselves are becoming jaded. Kong isn't that story. Kong is the fairy tale. Kong is the fantasy. This is not the Heart of Darkness version of Kong. It's not realistic. It's not exposing. It's not even really about the depression. They started there, but we're quickly whisked away to fantasy and twinkle and fun, and they don't want us to feel bad about any of that stuff. So this is just dishonest to say anything we're doing here compares to what Joseph Conrad did in Heart of Darkness. Yeah, I, I haven't read Heart of Darkness, but I know the whole Apocalypse Now thing, so that's my go-to. And I'm like, okay, is Carl Denham supposed to be the Marlon Brando character here? He's he's going to go crazier and crazier as he, you know, goes after finding this island and getting all this footage. But again, none of that really plays out, so it, it ends up feeling just pretentious. Yeah, if you want to do an allusion to Heart of Darkness, go ahead. But if you're going to have a character reading Heart of Darkness to point big neon arrows to see what we're doing and hit me over the head with it like a cartoon mallet, no, I'm going to hate that. I'm fine with that, but okay, see how much it's not like Heart of Darkness is what they're doing. See how everything that you're reading has no bearing on the silly fantasy full of sea monsters that we're actually experiencing. So I'm just dissatisfied that they're, yes, it's called pretension. They're trying to make more out of this than it's capable of bearing. The load weight says 200 and you're pouring 400 pounds of bullshit on us and it's cracking. And you're setting up things like this boy, we don't know where he came from. We, obviously, he came from Skull Island, right? I mean, there's got to be a fucking reason you're teasing this. No, no reason. Well, because this is edited in the way it is and they had to compromise it, he is supposed to be an enjoyable character because he takes the pin from the screenwriter and goes and marks up the poster of the supposed leading man of the movie. That there is this vain, arrogant guy, Bruce Baxter, played by Kyle Chandler, who gets to there, you know, he's brought golf clubs. So you can tell his heart is not into this. Even if they're going to Singapore, 
you don't bring golf clubs. And, of course, he's got to decorate his room all in movie posters that he's been in. The Dame Tamer, the Rough Trader. We're supposed to like Jimmy because he goes in there and vandalizes all of them. And, again, he's always deflating people. He had a lot of deleted scenes where Jack kept trying to write scenes and he would tell him, oh, no, that's not what happens when a guy gets stabbed. I've seen a guy get stabbed. Let me tell you what it's really like. That sounds like what Christopher Lee did to Peter Jackson on the set of Lord of the Rings. Mm, maybe. But he... He would be fun in the way that if this were like a Heart of Darkness demystifying of 1933 Kong, it's a way of taking the fairy tale out of the adventure. But he brings people down by bringing it back to Earth and showing it how it really is life at sea. So I liked this movie for the first 20, 30 minutes when we're in New York. But the next 30 minutes, because it's about at the hour mark that we get to the island, the 30 minutes of getting there on the boat, I'm not even really able to groove to the Jack and Anne romance here. I get that she's starstruck and they have their meet cute where she thinks the sound guy is Jack. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're not one of those tweety book nerds. And of course, Adrian Brody's in the background looking far more like she would expect. All you need is Naomi Watts to go, oh, he's standing right behind me, isn't he? Like, this is pretty sitcom level. Yeah, where's Urkel? Did I do that? There's more (laughs) of it in deleted scenes, too, I hate to say. Like, wisely, they realized this wasn't working. But that's the problem. You, You highlight the real problem here is now that we're at sea, we're supposed to see actress and writer don't like each other, and then they fall in love with each other as they get to the truth of the movie they're trying to tell. That's the whole idea, this postmodern idea of these people didn't know about sea life until they got on this boat, and now they're learning about it, and they're learning about each other, and they fall in love, and you've got to be a much more skillful writer than I feel like Peter Jackson and his collaborators are to make these broad types feel natural and like people I'd want to see in love. Would anyone want her to be with this guy? I mean, this is the same writing crew as Lord of the Rings, but I don't have a problem with an actress falling in love with a playwright. Like, again, that it seems kind of obvious. Problem? No, but do you believe it? Do you feel charmed by this meet-cute and, like, it's all done in montage? She's dancing with Jimmy. And- no, no, this stuff... I don't know if I'm to the extent that Arnie is hating this stuff, but I do feel like this second half hour, like this is where you kind of just forward. Let's just get to the island. Like, because none of these characters are really going to pan out. They're not going to end up being that important except the main one. So yeah, I don't care about this. If they're going to fall in love, let that happen on the island while they're going through their adventures. The only thing I really love on the boat is when they're filming a scene and they recreate the scene from the original King Kong, where Anne is talking to, in this case, the actor, but it was the first mate on the ship being like, you don't like women on your boats and things like that. And they do a verbatim retelling of that. That I liked. Well, it's funny because that original actor was so bad. And so to have it be that, well, Bruce Baxter is ad-libbing and not doing what the screenwriter wanted him to, thinking he's coming off natural and looking the way we all know it didn't work in 1933. Yeah, there are funny jokes 
and observations this movie is making about 1933. And yeah, that's kind of clever here. But I want to stress, it's really essential that we want Anne and Jack to be together. That's the primary reason why this is so long and we spend so much time at sea. And if you're going to make it silly shtick, like where, oh, I'm going to say nerdy Tweety type while he's standing behind me, that's not going to do the job. That's how not to write a romantic comedy. You can't do what everyone else has done before. You have to make these characters idiosyncratic and fresh. And if, like, the best they can do is have Adrian Brody bump into her shirtless while they're careening around at sea, that's just saying we don't know how to write characters falling in love. I don't know how to do that. (laughs) Because it would be appropriate for the time, like, do the screwball comedy thing where they fall in love. But if this is their take on screwball antics, then, yeah, do something else. Move on. Yeah, all those screwball comedies, the best one, have really sharp dialogue that is funny to this day. And, like, where's that sharp repartee? Where's the jokes that are going to make us laugh? This movie's corny funny, but it's not funny fun. It's not natural. And, and again, it's not even going for that. It's it's kind of working in a broad, stereotype, sitcom kind of way. It's all artifice. And I think that's a problem when you're trying to make the audience care about, I mean, well, first of all, your audience has come here for a monster movie. <laughs> and then you're telling them, but wait, you need to care about these, this love story. And then it's this love story. And these are the lovers. Like, I can understand why you'd make a three-hour Kong if this stuff worked. But if you're looking at this in the editing room, you go, well... It's going to be a two-hour con. Yeah, you could trim this first act way down. I like this film, but this first act, yeah, get another editor to come in and re-edit it. There's just so many wrong choices made from the writing to the casting of some of the people on the boat that it really made it hard for me to retain my interest in the film on my first attempt at watching it. It was at this point that I checked out and I started surfing my phone and then I started wishing I was asleep and I had to start over. I had to reboot and go back into it and I had to literally sequester myself in a room with no technology and force myself to pay attention to these boat scenes. It was that bad. Okay. I think we're all saying the same thing to varying degrees. I'm still with the movie. Again, I've always liked the build-up to the island. And once we finally get there and they want to be spooky, that's good. The leaky boat is the romance. And that's never going to not be true. Adrian Brody and Naomi Watts have no chemistry together. And their lines, their moments, all of it, just flat, flat, flat. The fact that they don't end up together is perfect. Yeah, I wish he fell off the Empire State Building. I wish she pushed him. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, let's get to the good stuff. We're getting to Skull Island. And it does look like Middle Earth, right? I mean, it just feels like they took some of the same production stills and designs. Yeah, it looks like orcs and black. Yes, I totally felt like they didn't want to do racial stereotypes, so they took some leftover orc makeup and called it a day. Yeah, this part is frustrating for me. I know there were people that were really upset. They're like, it's 2005. You you had a chance to redo all this. And it somehow seems more racist than the 1930s version because there's no motivation. There's this one native kid walking around that you're going to try to give him a chocolate bar and then... The natives are going to attack like there's no ceremony going on. They're just going to show up on the boat to kidnap the white woman because for reason like before we saw the negotiations and we saw talking here. They are just monster people. I actually feel like it is as 
culturally sensitive as you can be and still tell this story. To me, the way they look like, they're not people that worship a Kong god. They're people that have had to live on an island full of predators. And the best they could do was build this wall and the island is actually sinking. I don't know if that's clear, but they make that explicit in the bonus material. No, is that said? I've seen this movie multiple times. Yeah, no. Never got that impression. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all bonus material, unfortunately. But you can get the sense that the water is coming up. You can see how it's reclaimed some of this. It's why the village is so close to that. Like, there used to be more land to share, and they walled away all the creatures, and they had their community, and slowly but surely, it's all been rotting away. I did notice when the boat was, like, crashing up against the rocks, there's a lot of Kong shaped rocks that had been carved so maybe that used to be land or something it did seem weird that they would like row out to the middle of the water to make these carvings <laughs> yeah exactly so that is where you have to extrapolate the idea that this is venice italy and landmarks are just sinking and disappearing below the ocean line and so yes these people live in fear of kong they don't worship him you don't make him mad and so what happens is and it was more clear in the deleted scene all right so the venture gets blown up to these rocks gets stuck the sailors do their best to try and plug the hole and fix it and denim takes his film crew to land there was a scene that was cut where they're just filming on the beach and it's another scene from the 1933 movie if you remember how carl denim tried to get Faye ray to scream well jack black's going to try to do the same thing about coaching her to react to some horror and naomi watts is finally going to scream it's the first time she screamed and that's when you hear kong's roar this film crew has set off Kong, and that is why the tribe is mad at them, and that is why Naomi Watts must pay. It's because she was the one that did it, and Kong brides are essentially people that have made mistakes and gotten the ire of Kong and thus are fed to him. Cut out 15, 20 minutes on the boat and put some of this stuff back in. Because I feel if you're going to take three hours to tell this story, you're expanding, you're opening up on the mythology. Yeah, explain this bride stuff that we've always kind of just guessed about. But I do think you're right. They're nervous about it. And they've cast multi-ethnics in this role. And then, yeah, use makeup to try and make everyone kind of the same. The, the, the shaman is a female here. And again, she seems to hex Anne. Again, we don't know what she's saying, but she seems to blame her because Kong roared because she screamed. And that's why she must die. And we wouldn't normally do this. We're not savages. We wouldn't just normally attack anyone that came here. But you are bringing the wrath of Kong, and therefore you will pay. Well, they did throw a spear through a guy before that, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, And it was all <laughs> over a chocolate bar. You can't really say he deserved it. I gotta give this, though. If that is truly Naomi Watts, she screams like nobody's business. That is a tremendous scream. She does it three times, and every time it is great. I mean, she could be a scream queen with that holler. But she kind of is. I mean, with the ring, Mulholland Drive, I mean, it is Children of the Corn 4. We all love that one. <laughs> well, I forgot about that. <laughs> so at any rate, they kind of skim over this culture. But it, to me, it looks like one on the outs, one that is bedraggled, one that has suffered, and one that, in order to appease Kong, is lighting the lights and sending guys over on pole vaults to pick up Anne and bring her back so that she could be strung up in the ways that we always like to see the blonde strung up for Kong. I did like the pole vaulting to get to the boat. That, I thought, was very clever. Yeah, they tie that rope around the guy so they could pull him back through the ocean water. That was good stuff. 
Although he happens to lose his necklace at that moment. I guess it's because this is like the third time I'm seeing this exact thing happen. <laughs> yeah, that happens every time. You landed on a lot of rocks for your necklace to fall off when you hit the boat. Yeah, this scene was better through deleted scenes. I actually feel like there was more going on. It was more exciting. At the same time, if you notice the men are trying to disengage from the rocks and they're saying throw everything overboard. There was a whole subplot about Choi trying to grab the camera from Denim and throw that overboard. They were blaming him. And on the beach after Anne screamed, it was Carl Denham that heard Kong's roar and said, let's keep filming. Let's go inland. Let's find that roar. Everyone is getting mad at Denham for putting them in this position. And so that's why you see Denham in some scenes clinging to his camera so much. It's because other characters are trying to pitch it overboard while at the same time these natives are coming aboard and killing people and whisking Anne away. And the captain was ready to go and turn in Denim for his crimes and get the hell out of Skull Island. But Anne being captured, nope, we gotta mount the rescue party. You have 24 hours. Go in there. And it feels like 24 hours of cacophony. This is the definition of too much of a good thing. I love what Peter Jackson has created on Skull Island, but man, there is a lot of it. Arnie, you watched the extended version, right? Yes. Okay, that would be my complaint, too, with the extended version. Like, I feel like the theatrical one is going to be a better balance, better pacing, but I guess they got to sell more Blu-rays since no one's buying those HD DVDs anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, throw in some extra scenes, some more dinosaurs, all that, and it just kind of slows it down. Well, here's the thing. Up to this point, they're identical. 71 minutes when we get Kong, there is nothing different about the theatrical and the extended cut. All of the other stuff comes after the fact in the search party. Correct. But up to this point, everyone is experiencing the same thing. I kind of like it for the most part. I've always liked the buildup to the horror. Usually it's hard to top that. Your fear about what you're going to see is always worse than what it actually ends up being. So is that going to be true for Kong? We've seen him stop motion. We've seen him man in rubber suit. We're now seeing what 2005 can do. Mocap. Andy Circus. Favorite thing about this movie. I love Circus's performance. That the, you know, they've redesigned Kong. He's more like a just a giant gorilla. He you know, he's not gonna walk upright, but the personality that they're gonna be able to bring to this creature because of the mocap, it wins me over. This is my I wouldn't say my favorite version of Kong. I still love that stop motion original one, but with this film, my favorite thing is what Circus does with the character. I think he's the best actor in the movie by far. I, oh, easily. I know that there are great actors in this movie, but I don't feel like they're giving great performances except for Andy Serkis. I remember seeing the behind the scenes stuff when this movie came out of him doing the gorilla movements and things. And I know that was his thing, but I was kind of rolling my eyes back then. I wasn't able to take him seriously because I just only knew him as Gollum and that guy from 13 going on 30. But seeing it here and especially seeing what he would take this to do with Caesar and Planet of the Apes movies, he is tremendous. He really gives Kong a total personality, which he's lacked in every other 
Yeah, three for three. This is the innovation. Why remake Kong? You could say up to this point, all right, it's more expensive, but they're not doing anything that 1933 didn't do. Here's something 1933 couldn't do with stop motion puppety. They couldn't give a performance. You couldn't get this kind of expression from their leading man. And so it is going to be able to give a new level to Kong because we have Andy Serkis, you know, putting on dots, married to CGI and having those two work together to create something entirely fresh and new. Yeah, Stuart, you're saying that this film kind of wants to rely on Jack and Anne being a thing and getting the audience invested in their relationship. That doesn't work, but for the next two hours, I totally buy a giant gorilla and a vaudevillian actress have a thing going on, and it's all because of Circus's performance. Like, the emotion he's able to bring to Kong's face in this film is amazing. I also think Naomi Watts is better with him than she is with yes. Adrian Brody and everyone else. I mean, I think she gets better in this movie when she gets snatched away here. You know, they string her up. It's kind of a cool pole vault, drop the drawbridge kind of thing they got going on when they drop her on the platform. And they are cagey. We see Kong, but we don't totally see him. We see hands, we see eyes, and the only person in the ship crew that sees is Denim. I love the fact that Jack Black sees him, turns back, and his first thought is telling the cameraman, get the wide-angle lens. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell anyone else what it is because they probably won't go. Again, this is a very devious, terrible person. He is willingly putting these people in danger so that his film production can go on. But that's also why, you know, again, the artist isn't a good person, but they are a visual. Visionary, and hopefully, you know, he's going to get a great film out of it. And, you know, we'll donate the proceeds to Mike's family, right? You know, like, <laughs> he keeps promising as more and more people die. Yeah, like, oh, the wives, they're all covered. Like, oh, I don't think there's enough money here for that. But all right. His assistant sees through him when he says it for the second time, verbatim. And I never believed him even the first time. I mean, I was trying to figure out. Again, Jack Black can't play this exceptionally well. Yeah. So I'm not positive if he's trying to be sincere or not, but I'm taking it that he's not because Jack. Yeah, I feel like there are definitely, like William H. Macy is like an actor that's really good at trying to sell people on lies and like the mile a minute talker. Like there are other people that could have done this and Jack Black just is not right. And it's unfortunate because it's such a pivotal role. If this is a story story about movie making and the artistic process dragging people into danger i want to believe that the characters as dangerous as they are funny but there's just so much i mean in the first movie we had a couple of different things going on there were snakes and t-rexes and things but here they're going to add insects and bats and so many things and it's relentless it is non-stop and a lot of times I'll find that good, but here I find it exhausting. <laughs> yeah, again, I think the theatrical version is better paced, and yeah, is it exhausting? Yes, but I enjoy the ride. Here, like, they open up, and you see the crew, they're fighting a Triceratops, and they're going to shoot it dead, and it kind of takes away that magic Jurassic Park moment. Like, I think that that's intentional when they find these brontosauruses. It's, it's supposed to be like, oh, look what's on this island, but it's already kind of been spoiled in the extended version because we, we've already seen dinosaurs at that point. I, I'm sorry, are you saying that that's a good or a bad thing? Because you could make the case 
that that's heart of darkness that that's showing the realism of whatever and like there's a bleaker quality to the extended version yeah it seems like it with the extended scenes there's some sadness over some of these creatures dying but that's not this i mean it is this movie because you're going to be sad when king kong dies but it doesn't feel like that's what this movie is trying to set up i like the theatrical cut more because it starts off as the magical island that kind of turns into this nightmare when these brontosauruses start to stampede right yes the main difference is all here in the search party quest and one of the scenes that is completely removed from the theatrical version is the idea that these men fire into the trees get a triceratops running at them pitching them around with its horns and hayes has to put it down hayes will pay with this for his life later but hayes kills this lovely plant-eating creature and yeah it kind of starts the whole mission out on a sour note it's also worth pointing out this happened in 1933 and it played entirely differently i mean i don't think that uh, we saw those dinosaurs as anything other than threats and when they shot them i think that was supposed to be a good thing here we're having some moral ambiguity if not some turning on some of these characters and that is only in the extended version does that make it like joseph conrad no it does not i think that that was the intent yes (laughs) and yes there's this brontosaurus thing here's the thing it has been 15 years since this movie came out i remember this movie having good special effects but arnie you already indicated there seems here there are times when they're running and it's very clear there are composite shots and just some of the rendering is just not fluid yeah, when I saw this in theaters, this brontosaurus scene, look, there's some fun in it. I love when they all start tumbling like the big traffic car accident pile up. Like, to me, that's kind of funny, but ooh, the CGI gets real rough. Like you said, the composites, just the shading. Like, I notice a lot of bad CGI just comes down to their shading and lighting is all off. And so it just makes everything seem flat and artificial. And that's a big problem. Like, again, I think it's a fun scene, but it's dated in how it looks. It looks like exactly what it is. A 12-year improvement on Jurassic Park but it ain't what we can do now and I think it surprised me because I think we've reached a level in special effects where we don't have a lot of complaints usually if they have all the money and here I'd be like they had all the money and there's still some it's not bad there's just moments you go oh I'm taken out and I had to remind myself again of Revenge of the Sith and how bad it looked when Obi-Wan was riding the boga and all of that I'm like you know they weren't great then and they were great then that was really good but they weren't perfect they aren't what we are now yes yeah i feel like this is way more ambitious than what they did in the original jurassic park and that yeah you had all those dinosaurs running and then the humans hid behind a log here they're trying to you know incorporate humans running between legs and shooting guns and shooting dinosaurs and things falling off cliffs it is much more ambitious and so i'm willing to be more forgiving because i do like the scale that jackson has taken the story to yeah he's trying to pump it up and he's trying to give us a lot of dinosaurs strange in a movie called king kong but every now and then they cut to the ape we'll we'll talk about about it in a minute but the important thing here is they introduce i think they're velociraptors they're these smaller dinosaurs that are eating the people and they get the cameraman this is the second casualty of the independent shoot it's true sound is always the first thing to go sound guy <laughs> is always like ah we can live without sound on an independent shoot like if you lose the sound you're like we'll dub it later but now they've lost the cameraman and the camera is now being passed to preston and it's like how much further can we go it, it becomes a part of 
of Denim's story that he begins to cling to this camera, film people as they're dying. Again, is this the story of someone losing their soul? I think dramatically that is the story they're telling, but that's not the performance I'm seeing being given. And this movie never gets dark enough for me to feel that this is something important. The film also gets a little bit meta for me because you got Denim filming, but you've also got Andy Serkis here, not as a gorilla, but as a character named Lumpy. And when I saw that in the credits, I actually, I was looking this up on IMDb, I thought the son of Kong would be named Lumpy and it was going to be like Chewbacca's kid in the holiday special Lumpy. But no, this Lumpy is a seaman who is going to just constantly give Denim shit, like get that all on film did you after one of his shipmates dies yeah when they have a big fight with a sea monster which again is an extended scene and okay that's a neat little moment i wish it played out it, yeah Stuart, you said it if they want to do heart of darkness they're failing at that but it seems like they want some of that subtext here but it never pays off for me yeah looking at apocalypse now every station down that river you felt those people were losing their souls. They were losing something. They were getting crazier and crazier. And here, dramatically speaking, they're losing cast members, but I don't feel like they're going crazy in the same dramatic way. Because this is a fairy tale. Because this is not a drama. Because we're never really going to look at these people as anything other than colorful types. And Lumpy is a part of that. Lumpy's here just to be funny. You know, he looks like something out of Popeye. He doesn't look like an actual sailor. This feels like central casting pirate... It doesn't feel like someone that actually was at sea and lived this life and could actually share some realism. And that was a choice that Jackson made. That's fine. But it means all these scenes are getting a little dull and repetitive because I'm wanting drama. And the only time I'm getting it is when we cut back to Kong and we see him kind of falling in love. Like he lives on an island where everyone's trying to kill him all day long. And then all of a sudden a bride and he's had many. We've seen where he drops their necklaces well, that's what I'm asking. We will see him shaking Anne around, and that's when she notices all these skeletons with the same necklace that she was given by the natives. So, like, is he sexually aroused? Why is he shaking her all around, screaming? Is he angry? Yeah, we're not in that movie anymore. Dino De Laurentiis is nowhere near this script. He's not sexually aroused. He's going to eat her, just like he's done all the others before. She gets away before he can do that, and then when he corners her, she dares to say, no and she dares to perform comedy and again this is a character that wanted to bring comedy to the great depression this is someone that wants to retain her sense of lightness in the face of darkness kong is is someone that has had to spend all day long fighting things and meeting things that want to kill him here's something that finally wants to make him laugh that is his inroad to falling in love with and You just have to go with that he's smarter than your average gorilla and that he would enjoy vaudeville. I liked, though, that earlier they said vaudeville's a tough gig. You've got an audience that you either have to win them immediately or they'll eat you alive. You know, this is a more literal version of that. I don't know how I feel about her vaudeville being what wins him over and makes him decide, I'll keep you as a pet instead of I'll eat you. But... I do go with it. As for the whipping her around, Jacob, I think of when you give your dog a stuffed toy, it picks it up and shakes it. And do you know why it does that? 
because it thinks it's a baby animal and you do that to snap the baby animal's neck so that you can kill it before you eat it. The way Kong is whipping her around, if she doesn't have a snapped neck, at the very least, she would have the worst case of whiplash known to God or man. Well, yeah, and this isn't the only time he's going to abuse her when she starts doing that vaudevillian act and falling down like he starts pushing her down and finding pleasure in that and this Anne again Fay Ray great scream but that's all she did in that movie this Anne she refuses to scream she actually won't scream again that's her character I'm going to be funny I'm not going to play into the depression but she's also tough like she's going to tell Kong no like this could be like a strong feminist character but she also is feminine this being a fairy tale I what really draws me it almost feels like these old traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity you know, you have Kong like beating his chest. I know that's problematic in our day and age, but it's something I like about this because it is set in the 30s. It does have that fairy tale feel. Like Anne is a strong, independent woman because we need that in today's movies. But there's also femininity to her that you see how she could calm this gruff male character and try to bring some humanity to him. And indeed, I mean, they've called it out many times. That is the fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast. I mean, you can watch any version of Beauty and the Beast, I believe, except. Linda Hamilton's TV show and see this play out. I like the stuff with Anne and Kong. There's so little of it, though. And there's so much Adrian Brody and others getting into trouble with insects. And Baxter saying, heroes don't look like me. I'm going back to the boat. And heroes have beer bellies and are missing teeth. And then Baxter coming to save the day. Here's the thing. We're not here for that. We didn't come for Jurassic Park. We're not here to see that movie. This movie's called King Kong. Took forever to get to him. Now that we're here, we're not wanting to split our time. But I wouldn't mind it if there was something I could latch onto. But it's action for action's sake that doesn't feel like it's progressing anything. I think we're supposed to care that Hayes is trying to protect Jimmy. Like, we're supposed to care about that. <laughs> Uh, that's the problem is like that lumpy really likes choy and you know like they told us that characters matter here and i could respect that but then they gave us really broad boring caricatures and don't tell me that's dramatic don't tell me that i'm going to feel for them you're right it ends up being action for action's sake but in peter jackson's mind i think he's telling a dramatic ensemble story would the cut scenes have made me give a damn it would have deepened character backstories. It would have shown you more interaction between them. You would learn about Hayes fighting in World War One and not being appreciated by America because he was black. You will learn things about them. Will that change the way you feel? I feel like they still give these kind of flat performances. I feel the writing is still kind of wooden. And I feel like this whole movie is artificial and not realistic. So I'm not going to take this stuff for more than a grain of salt. Yeah, again, the Triceratops, the sea monster, that, I don't know, that emu or whatever they accidentally shoot. Like, that is all extra stuff that I feel takes away from the pace. And you're right, yeah, because they cut back and forth between Kong and then the rest of the crew, but with this extended cut, it feels like you're spending much more time with the crew than Anne and Kong. Right. But there's only 15 minutes added, so we'd still have 75 minutes of this. Yeah, yeah but in movies, five, a five-minute scene could kill a movie. Like, it, it's all about pacing. 
I do feel like the stronger cut is probably the theatrical cut because the only thing you're getting in the extended cut is a lengthening of the search party. And you're seeing things that make the sailors look a little bit more contemptible, like Lumpy shooting a defenseless dino bird. All that does really is set up the fact that when Anne gets away from Kong, she runs across that corpse and a meat-eating dinosaur is there and it just leads to, you know, the chase that's going to change her relationship with Kong. She is eventually going to be cornered by three T-Rexes. If the first <laughs> Kong had one. one, we got to have three. It's a whole family, you know? And so... And, and before you even get the T-Rexes, it was like giant iguanas or something that are chasing her. Yes. I, again, I didn't even want to go through all that. There's millipedes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of shit falling on her. But eventually she screams and Kong comes to her rescue and, again, takes bites for her, grabs her when she's falling. I like this fight. You know, you talk about, like, when Iron Man gets his Hulkbuster armor and fights the Hulk. Like, okay, that's a fun little scene. To me, like, this is on par with those kind of action scenes. Like, the way Kong will swing his shoulder to move Anne out of the way from a T-Rex jaw and take a bite on the arm. And I like how this is all choreographed. And yes, this is all CGI. Who knows if Circus is acting out this fight. But... I like this action because this is a jungle film. This is a fantasy. This is an action film. So, yeah, I like this fight. Does it go on a long time? Yeah, probably a little too long, but I enjoy it for the most part. This fight scene is very good. You might be exhausted by the movie because it's been nothing but fight scene, but this is one of the best. It does undermine the impact of this fight, but I do like this fight. It is very long and very detailed, and had we not had so much action up to it, I think I would absolutely love this scene. In isolation, it is good. I marvel at the upper body strength of everybody who's traveled to this island, because Anne is going to hang from vines, and Adrian Brody's going to hang from cliffs. Everybody's just <laughs> hanging by their hands. But I do like this fight. It is really three-dimensional, the way it goes down the crevasse there, and just so much going on. And Kong, I said in the first 30s movie that it took so long to kill that T-Rex, I felt like it made him not feel like a king of this jungle. Here, there's three of them. And the fact that he's sacrificing himself, he'll take a bite on the arm from a T-Rex to save Anne. I, I think it's pretty awesome. And he's still doing his signature move. They got to work in the crack in the jaw thing. I mean, that's I think that might what really impress her there. Oh, yeah, they like pushes the jaw in there and plays with it again. And this Kong is going to do that roar beat on his chest like he is the king of the jungle. And the way people might feel about like when Iron Man is a cool fight scene, like that is how I feel about Kong in this movie. Like I am so into this Kong and like just as an action movie. Yeah, just give me a CGI action thing. Don't make it three hours. But here's the thing. I don't think it's the length that's the problem. It's the lack of focus. It's the fact that we have all these other characters when if it were just about Anne, think about it this way. Anne comes from a jungle too, where people are always trying to kill her and exploit her and take off her clothes and do terrible things. Of course she's going to relate to a fighter like this. And the fact that she's going to be able to charm him with love and her sense of comedy that he's never even experienced in his jungle, that is the perfect relationship. But you just need to focus on that. Because Jimmy and Hayes ain't the movie. And every time you're spending <laughs> the time on them, you're taking away from King Kong. Yeah, the, the thing with 
Jimmy and Hayes and the rest of this crowd is like Kong's going to show up, toss Hayes, throw the rest down a chasm. They're all going to get killed by bugs except Jack, Carl, and whatever Colin Hanks' name is in this film. Like, they're the only ones that are going to live. And the camera dies, too. Up to this point, Colin Hanks has been preserving the camera or Carl Denham has been pulling it out and, and, and filming it, but they've had a movie. And now they don't have a movie. That camera, when it falls down the chasm... Yeah, the film gets exposed. Yeah, it's all over now. There's nothing that they can use. And so that's when you actually see Jack Black being like, oh, now it's a tragedy because my (laughs) film and my vision is dead. What can I do? He has to rebuild to the idea of capturing Kong and exhibiting Kong. But yes, that's what's done by everyone falling into a chasm. It's a literal lowest point moment for all these characters. But yeah, it's a lot of bugs, too. Did we need all of that? Did we need the penis worms? It's really gross. <laughs> well, I think this is a tribute to a scene that was never filmed for the 1933 one. The director's like, this will never pass the censors, so they'd never shot it, but here it is back here. Well, again, we talked about that. Maybe they shot it. Different versions of it, but it's not in any version of King Kong that anyone can find now. And yes, there is a part of Jackson that is fearful, I feel, at this point, so reverent of the movie that is his favorite movie that he doesn't want to do anything different. And so we must have the long-lost scene because that's a nerd fantasy that I can geek out to, even though it adds 15 minutes to this movie that it doesn't need what it does is it separates jack from the others everyone else is going back to the boat but jack is not giving up on Anne because we're expected to believe he loves her that much and he's going to write a comedy for her so of course he's got to risk life and limb and climb up those vines and pass all of those bats it's finally happening jacob the child what did the child do once it actually saw the bats did it like flip out no i think he just closed his eyes he just wanted to know when he had to close his eyes okay well (laughs) there it is i had to listen two hours of him asking when the bats are showing up here's the bats they're not even scary kid yeah so anyway the point is he comes to rescue her and the question worth asking is does Anne want to be rescued i mean she actually had this moment watching the sunset with kong and kong's kind of pissed at her like for a while he won't look at her but eventually (laughs) picks her up cradles her they spend the night together not in a biblical way but you know you get my point yeah she's in his palm sleeping comfortable with him she tries to teach him the word beautiful as they watch a sunset together Obviously, you would want to be off this dangerous island, but I actually feel like it's genuine. We saw that happen. She willingly went to him. He threw her on his shoulder. They ran off. This is her protector. It might be Stockholm Syndrome, but like this is the man that I love right now on Skull Island. And does Jack coming back remind her of the man she really loves? Or does she get to, is she still sleepy and not realizing that she's being taken away? It all hinges on how you are expected to think Anne feels about Jack. And we heard her say she loves his plays, but I've never seen a scene where these two actors pop and have the same kind of chemistry she does with the eight. No, their kiss is nothing compared to Kong holding her at sunset. Yeah, it's just not working for them. And that's too bad. It's an, it's a central role. And yeah, Adrian Brody, again, is known as a rapscallion who can win women's hearts, but not in this movie. So yeah, this is all familiar. You know, climbing down the vines, Kong chasing after them, tearing through the village, 
doing all that he can to make sure that his woman stays on Skull Island and isn't taken from him. And he's pissed when she starts to leave. Obviously, he would be. But by this point, Denim has decided what's better than a movie? A live show. And my ship captain just happens to be good at capturing big game and has a ton of chloroform on board. Let's do this. Yeah, and of course it comes down to the captain actually wants to kill the thing. He's got a harpoon gun when it's down there in the rocks. He's like, yeah, I hit them in the leg and next time it'll be the heart. But Denim, out of greed more than anything, lands that final bottle of chloroform, puts it right in Kong's face, and we have this kind of overdramatic scene of Kong passing out, reaching for Anne. It's a little overdramatic, but I do like, I think Naomi Watts sells the tragedy of the scene where she just kind of whispers, you know, turn back, go away, like, don't come after me. I, I, I like that little moment there. Like, look, this film is really about a tiny woman and a giant ape kind of being in love, and I'm buying it from these two. <laughs> so it works. You know, one thing, it was an idea from the 1976 Kong script that didn't get made, and I know that the They talked about it here. It doesn't really come through to me, but I'm going to throw it out there. Tell me if you guys see any of it. There was a thought that everything that they experience on Skull Island, they also experience in New York. So that when he's being attacked by bats, it's the same thing as the airplanes. And there's an equivalency for one world and the other. So it's really the same place. You know, it's kind of Wizard of Oz in the sense that black and white Kansas is the same thing as Technicolor Oz. I didn't really get that here, but it would have been an interesting thing to follow through on. I I wish they had made that parallel more cleaner because I think that's a good idea. I like it. But I think they've just pushed too much action onto that island that would be impossible to replicate. I don't know what King Kong fighting three T-Rexes would be in New York fighting (laughs) three subways, three cabbies fighting over a fair or something. I mean, I get what you're saying. Yes, because they have pushed and needed to push the CGI Weta action so much. New York will never look like this place. But it would have been funny if they could have found subtle cues and maybe even costuming or something allude to. I don't know. At any rate, the point is they get back to New York, and we all know how this is going to end. But I did not know that Anne wasn't going to join the stage show. That's the big surprise. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't have any scenes on the boat going back, because in the 30s one, we had them being signed for that show. Here, based on how things go, I guess they wanted it to be a surprise, but we could have seen them turning it down Are there deleted scenes? There's no deleted scene of them coming back. Peter Jackson joked in a commentary that he could make a whole other movie, you know, King Kong, the interquel. They actually did talk about doing it with the 30s one, where like on the way back, they've experienced disasters in South America or something like that. But he was being sarcastic. He knows that he can go too big and maybe he even knows he's gone too long with this story. I get the sense that Peter Jackson does know he can overindulge. Like, yeah, he's like, yeah. Yeah, I'm aware that I do that. Like, it's not like he's totally blind to that trait in some of his films. Yeah, he definitely, like, even in the commentaries, like, are you still awake? I mean, he joked about the length. And yet, you know, why not make one for yourself? Like, if this is the one that he wanted to make, 
He's at the height of his powers. Yeah, it's a vanity project, but you know, every director makes one. I, I get it. As long as it's working, then I, I'll indulge the length. And it is a nice surprise. Like Anne is off doing her own thing. She's doing another play, and I had forgotten about this. I like that little twist. Like it is so sad to see Kong when they unveil him, and he's just sitting there, and they got to pull on these chains to even like lift his arms to try to make him look scary. But they're gonna reenact a ceremony, and you're think Anne is there turns around it's not Anne and that's when Kong goes crazy I like that little detail I'd forgotten about that it's the best reason for Kong's rampage that they've ever given the idea that flashbulbs confused Kong or you know that he was worried that they were manhandling his Anne or that she was getting married all of that stuff felt thinner than the idea of okay i'm in this miserable place but i've been in miserable places before at least i have my girl and when she turns her head up and she doesn't quite look like naomi watts that's it i'm furious i'm not going to tolerate i like the scene where we hear voiceover of driscoll telling Anne, i wrote a comedy and she's like well why would you do that isn't it obvious? And then we see that comedy. It's not Anne on stage. And they're saying men can't say the important thing. So because he said, isn't it obvious instead of I love you, something happened there. Maybe she just had a big, taller, darker, hairier man in her life, but she isn't with him. She's not performing in this comedy yeah, it's confusing to me because I like what they were trying to do with that. Yeah, I wrote a play for her, but I didn't have the guts to invite her to actually do it when the time came. I think we saw something happen where he was trying to pull her to the boat and she she pulled away from him. Like, Anne actually was like, Jack, I don't like the fact that you're... I think she saw him as being in cahoots with everyone else and capturing Kong. And she pulls away from him and probably he felt like, well, she's not going to do my play anymore, is what I'm guessing... The only problem I have is she knew very well that he loved him. Like, it wasn't subjects. The man climbed up vines and did everything for that. So it would have meant more if she had a different interpretation. If she thought he was Carl Denham or Carl Denham was doing this play, that would mean something. Here, Jack is all lover boy, hard on his sleeve. And so, yeah, why doesn't she know if indeed she loves this play right? Why isn't she doing this play instead of this chorus line that she's doing somewhere else? But eh, it's a quibble. I, I like the confusion. I like the reveals here. And it motivates Kong in a, in a good way. And here, I mean, we have the most evil denim we've ever had in any of these films. I mean, worse than the oil guy, worse than the 30s one who we all said was a villain and who even audiences back then said was a villain. Here, this guy filmed while people died. He made snuff films with dinosaurs and mosquitoes. He told lies we're going to give money to the family. You see the look of guilt in his eye when his assistant is there looking at him from the balcony while he's enjoying being in the spotlight and all those producers who fired him and called the cops after him. Not only that, but again, on the marquee, it's saying starring Ann Darrow. Part of the reason why we think Naomi Watts is there is he's lying and saying, we've got the woman that was really there and it ain't the woman that was really there. This man can't do anything but lie. And so you're right. He's got a comeuppance coming. And I thought 
Kong would step on him, just like we had with Charles Grodin. No, this guy gets away scot-free. I mean, again, Adrian Brody is so abused in this movie. I can't count the number of times he gets knocked on the head and knocked out, and he's almost beheaded by the natives, too. I mean, Adrian Brody just gets it again and again, and Jack Black gets out of it scot-free. Yeah, even he, you know, he's sneaking in the theater because he thinks that's where Anne is and he wants to tell her he loves her. And he's finding out that Baxter is actually that vain actor is the one getting all the credit that he should have for capturing Kong. So I do think that, yeah, yeah, he is constantly a sap. I guess this is his moment to shine because he's now going to get in a car and lead Kong away from a trolley. And yeah, is there a good point to have him in the story anymore? No, but I like that Kong kind of recognizes him. Like, you're the one that took my love away from me and like chases him <laughs> in the theater. Yeah. I, I love when like Kong jumps up on the second story of seats and it's like just crumbling down. He's trying to climb up after Jack. Yeah. When he gets in that taxi, it's a little bit too much, but see, see I'm, I'm pro Kong. Like Dino, you are so, wrong kong fights so many dinosaurs and bats and i still love him like i am so pro kong like i i kind of want him to get jack like i I get his rage at least yeah it was very important for jackson to retain a really sense of of a feral animal like he never wanted this to be too soft of a kong like he never wanted it to be cute i mean again look at where it lived look what it had to do to survive why would it be cute it just got a taste of cute and it doesn't want to let that go and so that's what ann represents and that's why he's got to find her and yeah would ann you know she willingly comes to him if she saw him eat jack before would that turn her off (laughs) i mean she does kind of think jack's a jerk right yeah, I'm not sure, but I remember something you said. You said that we never want to have an unsympathetic Kong. We always want to feel sad when Kong dies. Here, they're pushing my limits to appreciate Kong with the carnage he is doing. Now, they've softened him a little bit. He does grab somebody thinking it's Anne. It's not her. He just kind of tosses her like over the shoulder. Like, meh. It's not the good toss like we had in the 70s one. Oh, oh you don't think she's dead? I mean, I definitely think fake Anne on the stage show is dead he does it a couple of times again yeah he's a savage and he's angry and yeah when he was killing on skull island you weren't crying for the dinosaurs i think that what's the difference here there's the same aggressors yeah i'm, I'm still on kong's side because yeah he was a captive beast that was brought over and then yeah exploited so yeah get your revenge on the people who exploited you i mean that's a common thing in movies and he's a giant ape these are nameless new yorkers i all in for it and if he wants to tear down new york at this time when so many people are suffering i mean yeah you could even see him as a populist champion that he's tearing down the rich and not quite robin hood i don't see him helping the poor but (laughs) you know it's a symbolic act that he is going to claim himself king here i do love that jackson he he will take risks. I, I feel like whatever you think about Jackson, he's willing to put his vision out there and that you get this scene that it probably goes on a little too long. It's basically Kong and Anne ice skating. Like, must be really cold because I don't know how that's holding Kong up. But I, it's this sweet, again, fairy tale moment of them skating around, sliding on this frozen lake. It, it seems beautiful. It's got that dreamy music. And then the sh- mortar shells start coming in and blowing things up. And it's, it's back to, oh yeah, we can't have peace. Like, again, if you want to see this as analogous to some interracial relationship whatever they can't have peace they can't be left alone 
Yeah, I remember hating this at the time, but then again, I was holding my eyelids open physically with my fingers. <laughs> yeah, it was about 2.30 a.m. right now. <laughs> yeah, I was like, God, just stop this shit. What is this? Are they going to like have a sleepless in Seattle moment? Like This is just ridiculous. But you know what? In context, years later, knowing that it was coming, it is the crux of this. It is important that we understand this Anne more than any other Anne we've seen before loves Kong, wants to protect him, and is happy to share a moment of peace when so much of their time together has been about survival and brutality. This whole stretch, from the moment she just shows up in the middle of the street as Kong's about to kill Driscoll to the ice skating rink, I actually rewound. I'm like, did I miss something? She just wanders out in the street. Yeah, she does. Backlit, looking like an angel. And then they just have a romantic moment. Nobody's after them. It feels very strange. Well, it's fairy tale, but again, Beauty and the Beast. Belle doesn't side with Gaston, you know, like she makes her choice about who's right and who's wrong. And again, it's almost like a psychic connection. She walks out of her own show, sees a Kong poster on the ground and hears screaming in the distance. And instantly she makes that connection. It's him and I can calm him and I can we can be together. I don't know if she's thinking that it's going to be forever, but I think she knows she has has the ability to charm, make him laugh. Ice skating's new. I don't think he's ever seen... There was no snow on Skull <laughs> Island. So this part is definitely a next level for their relationship. But again, I think she thought she could help. And what's really happened here is that she's now just caught in all the crossfire because the military is now swarming the streets. And so let's climb the Empire State Building. That's what Kong does. One of the things that annoys me in this film is... Jackson's use of slow-mo. Yes. It's not even Jackson's use. Jackson saw Ridley Scott movies and said, hey, I want to do that stuttering effect. Mm-hmm. Back on the island with the natives, and he did this in Lord of the Rings with the orcs, too, where he does this like weird slow-motion thing that I don't know if he's trying to make it scarier. I, I felt like he had to be aping someone. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I saw it back on the island, too, and it comes back here. But yeah, it is this like weird slow-mo stuttery and yet it's drifting everywhere too Ridley Scott did it for action here it's just like here's pictures of skulls is it supposed to give a vertigo effect like the person's flipping out at what they're seeing but it comes back here and I'm like this just it isn't working for me and he drops all the sound out and he just goes for minimalist sound effects so we've got the military shooting at Kong as he's climbing but I guess because he's so high up we hear none of it and it just becomes these quiet moments and there's the sunset again so they can relive that moment like when she tried to teach him the word beautiful again that it's the same place like that his world and her world are equally hostile is a nice idea they could have played with and then they just have this brief moment yeah one was a sunset this is a sunrise because actually he escaped at night and now here comes day and here comes the airplanes i i, I like that it's, po it's poetic and yeah i mean they're going to do what you know kong knocks down some planes but in the end they're not going to change the ending uh, there is only one ending for kong and that is that he gets killed he falls after so much action i guess peter jackson was just like nope don't need that anymore we're just gonna do this dramatically we're not gonna have any sound we're not gonna have any fighting it is a really anticlimactic climax 
Well, it's the same climax as the original. I, what's anticlimactic, in your opinion? It doesn't feel like he, a fight because of the way that they've gone for the slow-mo and the no audio and all of that. It just feels like a requiem. I didn't get that sense when he's fighting the planes. Yeah, I guess it does at times, but I still feel like you're going to see him do things that that stop-motion one could never do. I love when he grabs that plane and swings it around and throws it into another one. Uh, Yeah, you're going to have a lot of Naomi Watts running around trying to save Kong, standing there in front of him. It works for me because I love this Kong. I'm rooting for him. I'm not crying, but I'm sad when he dies. Like, this does feel like a tragedy to me. I didn't get that vibe in the 1976 one. Sorry, Dino. Here... It's working better. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be deeper. We wouldn't accept 1933. It's too perfunctory. We need to have, again, maybe Jackson oversells it. I do think slow-mo, sometimes he, he pushes the emotion a little too much. But yeah, when we see the ape actually die, it, when it's clear he's dead even before he rolls off the top of the building, it, the light goes out of his eyes. Again, that performance, that's powerful. And yeah, the fact that he's laying there, you know, I really wanted something different. I was really hoping they were not going to do the same line. When Carl Denham goes up there and they said, oh, the airplanes killed him. I'm like, would you say the truth? Because I would have definitely preferred if he finally said, you know what? I killed him because he (laughs) did. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point of Denham and that he could actually take responsibility for it. That would have been great. But no, Jackson has to like do the thing that worked in 1930. Yeah, because it is Jack Black actually peter jackson like what's the analogy here what's the subtext oh it's just we're gonna go for the same ending you lose everything that you've been building up by showing this probably even more evil vision yes doing snuff films and now he's just gonna say that same line he said it in the 33 movie because he was constantly a spin master he was telling the reporters the angle here we get jack black just pontificating Yeah, and he's not good at that, by the way. This is not what he does best. Give him a guitar, have him do some funny heavy metal songs. Maybe that was the ending they needed. I don't know. But I was just a little sad that it's it's on the nose. You, you, you want Tenacious D versus King Kong? Is that what you're going for? Maybe. I don't want this, but uh, this is what we got. And then we got like 10 more minutes of credits, too. So it ain't over yet. I like the score. And I do like that they have that Art Deco style for the credits, just to give it that old-timey feel. Well, as credits roll, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Peter Jackson's elongated King Kong? Jacob. Like I said, I thought about putting this in our underrated Movies Re-Recommend book because I do feel like like everyone saw it and everyone's like, eh, it's too long. And I don't feel like it's too long is really a critique. Like there's something behind that that you're really trying to get at. But everyone just said it's too long. There could be three-hour films that are great. There could be 80-minute films that are awful. I think you talked about that with those cartoon movies of Kong that you had to watch that were 70 minutes and it took you two or three days to get through it. Oh, yeah. So too long. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of stuff like... He puts everything in here, and does it all work? Absolutely not. There's stuff I would cut. You can make this shorter, but all the Kong stuff I love. I think Andy Serkis is fantastic here doing the the mocap stuff, the emotion I get out of Kong, the relationship I get between Kong and Anne. Like, I am buying all of that. I'm loving the dinosaur fights. Again, the extended cut, a little too much action. Stick to the theatrical one. But what really I love about this film is the relationship between a giant ape and a woman. And that shouldn't work, and it 
does for me, like in that fairy tale kind of way. Like this is the best Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> if I got to watch a Beauty and the Beast, this is the version I would want to watch that because Naomi Watts and Andy Serkis and the CGI people convince me of that relationship. So yeah, I could give a solid recommend to Kong 2005. Stuart. Yeah, it's definitely not a movie to start at midnight. I understand completely my initial disenchantment. Be that as it may, I was happy to come back and see. It's still true. King Kong is a real challenge at three-hour length, particularly if you came for a monster movie. If you just enjoyed 1933 because it was a B-movie with campy, fun special effects and the ape tore up everything, I think that having it inflated with this kind of self-importance what is the point of expanding it other than to do it bigger? I mean, does the Big Ape accomplish anything more than carrying the hopes and disappointments of Depression-era America on his back, scaling the tallest building of the world, and then falling and dying? The only way that this movie is about anything more if it's about more than the ape. And unfortunately, that's where this fails. When they try to tell us it's about Jimmy and Hayes and Englehorn capturing animals and all of the sporting characters, I just don't understand why they're important. I don't understand what they say about the Depression or the time period, anything at all. I think you could have recast and it might have helped. I definitely think you needed to work on that screenplay. But Ultimately, where I fall on this is I think Peter Jackson struggles with focus. I remember being really irritated at the end of Return of the King when we're suddenly expected to believe the last 10 hours of Frodo taking a ring to Mordor was actually Sean Astin's Sam story. Remember, they tried to pull some <laughs> bullshit in the last 40 minutes of like, no, it's about Sean Astin. Hell, it is, Peter Jackson. Tell your focus your laser to the things that matter and don't get lost in the weeds. All that matters in a King Kong movie is King Kong, not Jimmy. Now, fortunately, Andy Serkis is a tremendous King Kong, and he does save this movie from its excesses for me. He is good enough to recommend this film mildly, even though, yes, I still would like it shorter. But when I think about it, I mean, yes, he's a thoroughly believable leading man that has a incredibly moving relationship with Naomi Watts. Beautiful. You know, that's the word she uses. That's what I would use to describe his work in this film. And while the CGI effects aren't always there, by and large, this is one of the great mocap performances of cinema. I really hemmed and hawed over whether or not to recommend this. I mean, it's not the length. If you are giving me a great, involving story, Tarantino's films, Django, I look at the runtime and I'm like, ooh, what's it going to do? Hateful Eight, the fact that they came out with a longer version. But then I get into those movies and I'm so into the characters and into their stories that I don't ever want to leave this theater. And then I go for a three and a half hour Suspiria and I want to cut out after 45 minutes. So it's not the length, it's what you do with it. But don't and here what peter jackson has done is given me the best new york stuff we've ever had the best king kong we've ever had thanks to andy circus i never question the ape i never questioned king kong it's a great looking kong when kong is holding Anne, 
Sometimes Anne doesn't look so good, but the ape always looks good. The dinosaurs look good. When the people are running next to the dinosaurs, not so much. But the best Kong, the best Anne in Naomi Watts. A great scream and a great relationship. And I like when she bites back and she's tired of being pushed around. There's a little bit of, you know, modern day stuff here. They make Anne less of a put-down woman. They make the romance with the more sensitive writer than with the more hunky first mate of the ship. She tells him no. Like, you know, she puts that foot down and says no, and he respects her for it. Mm -hmm. No means no when an ape is pushing you over with his finger. Absolutely. But there's so much noise in the jungle and so many animal attacks with characters that I absolutely hate. I mean, anybody introduced on that boat should have walked the plank before we got to Skull Island. The only characters I like in this movie are the ones we met in New York, and Jack Black gets iffy the more he's supposed to be crazy. So the movie has some serious weaknesses, some high strengths, in the end, it, it didn't sustain itself. It collapsed upon itself. And I found myself not enjoying the climax. And that's where I really made my decision is by the time the airplanes come, I'm like, shoot the fucker. And he's ripping off the top of the Empire State Building and they're trying to make it dramatic. And I don't care for Kong. I don't care about Kong outside of his relationship with Anne, which... I'm never quite sure. Again, you mentioned Stockholm Syndrome, Stuart, and I'm always like, there's something about that relationship that does feel non-consensual in certain ways. Oh, well, yeah, she was his captive. I don't think she would have yeah, willingly... Yeah, he, he definitely holds the power in that relationship. I don't think she would have swiped left, like, if it was on <laughs> Tinder. I mean, she didn't pick him. So, I didn't cry when Kong fell, and I didn't believe Jack Black when he said, "'Tis beauty killed the beast." "'Tis Jackson who killed the beast with an overblown melodramatic script." Yeah, I definitely felt that way the first time I saw it. I think what helped me was going through this whole journey, seeing all the different permutations of Kong and how it's been. And yeah, I could appreciate all the nuances that Jackson brought to it. And I thought this one brought something no other version had with the Kong performance. That, to me, is worth celebrating. If you like Kong, you're going to want to see this performance. And Arnie, you mentioned that each film that we've covered has been a duology. Kong, 1933, had Son of Kong. And the Japanese Godzilla vs. Kong had one more Kong escaping. Dino got two. Jackson did come back to Kong. He did? No, he came back to Kong. He did it five years later. Admittedly, it took uh, the Universal Studios ride burning down for him to consider it. <laughs> But yes, in June 1st, 2008, the studio attraction, I don't know if the Kong animatronic caught fire or whether it just got caught up in the fire, but a whole city block of Universal Studios burned down. They were repairing one of the warehouses, supposedly. Like, Universal didn't even announce this until, like, 10 years later that, like, all the stuff that was lost in this fire. But I believe they were doing some repairs on one of the warehouses that held props in that and, you know, tools doing their thing, caused some sparks, and it started to fire. Okay, so I'm wrong to think that Kong, the old creaky ride, like, his arm 
sparked and caused the fire. No, the, the ride didn't, like, malfunction. No, that is not what happened. <laughs> but, but Universal didn't say, let's rebuild that animatronic. When Kong burned down and the whole New York set back lot burned down, they said, this is an opportunity. We've made a King Kong movie and our ride looks nothing like it. Let's bring in the guy that made the movie, Peter Jackson. What would you do? And his answer is... 3D motion ride. I have only been to Confrontation to see the animatronic. In Florida, I saw it rode past the old robot ape. And then before I left L.A. a few years ago, I went to Universal Studios Hollywood for the first time. I rode this ride. The last time I went to Universal Studios, The Simpsons was brand new, and they replaced the Back to the Future ride with that. And yeah, they incorporated 3D and kind of a thing that moves around. Is that what Kong is now? It's not part of the tram. No, you are. You never leave the tram. You're on the tram. You've already seen Jaws. You've Fast and the Furious and Toretto and all these people. And then they wheel you into this, what you think is a soundstage. And that's when the glass of the tram becomes a 3D movie. And you see Kong and a T-Rex fighting each other. And then like the T-Rex will jump on top of the tram and the whole thing starts moving. And I just got to say... Maybe it's old-fashioned, but I like the old ride. I like the idea of actually seeing... It might have been clunky, but I'd rather see a robot than a 3D movie. So you never get to see an animatronic? Oh, absolutely. There are no animatronics. It is a 3D movie playing out all around you. uh, Ceiling, floor, sides. What impressed me at the ride was the big ape, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with the Jaws ride. What impresses you is the shark coming out of the water, the reality of it, the stepping into the movie, having a 3D movie. I'm sorry, the Terminator 3D show was never as good as the King Kong ride. Not as good, no. And they did this to Jurassic Park. Now it's Jurassic World, the ride. And yeah, it's a lot of flat screen TVs that you're watching dinosaurs run around on instead of robots. And I want my robots. I think they're harder to maintain. And again, I suspected that's what caught fire. I actually (laughs) thought Kong burst into flames and they're like, we're not doing this anymore. But they lost the charm of the ride, in my opinion, by moving from robot to 3D movie. It may feel more real to some people. It probably is more technically exciting. But yeah, I want my old Kong. I can do you one better. Peter Jackson did something else with Kong before the ride, after this movie. Peter Jackson's King Kong, the video game. Oh, well, I mean, that seems like a natural, but was he actually involved? Why would he do that? He was involved overseeing it, and you had all of the actors, Jack Black and Naomi Watts, doing the voice. Yeah. Come on, you gotta play Kong, though. Here's the weirdest thing about the game. It's a first-person shooter. No. (laughs) What? You're one of the search party? No, you want to be Kong fighting the dinosaurs. You're Jack. No, wrong. No. And not playing. You got to write a comedy at the end of the game? Well, here, let me get there. But it starts off with actual footage from the movie. And keep in mind, it came out at about the same time. So it almost works as a trailer showing Jack Black saying, we got to leave quickly. We got to hit the boat. We got finding Anne and convincing her to go. And you're all on the boat. And then you get to Skull Island. And it's the whole first hour of this film in like four minutes. And then you're exploring the island. And... 
and hasn't been caught yet. But as you just start exploring, before you get to the villagers, there's giant insects and things attacking you, and you have to shoot them. And you have to solve puzzles, and it's just a first-person shooter. They took the worst part of the movie and made it the game. This is just Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Yeah. If I love Jack, I could see that that would be fun. But come on, you're right. We absolutely have to be calm. We absolutely have to be calm. You get to play calm. Oh, thank God. Later, huh? You switch. Yes, you switch between Jack and Kong. Now, it does pretty much follow the movie. I played the first couple levels. I actually installed it and played it. And it's clunky. It's a 2005 game, you know, Xbox graphics. And it wasn't all that fun. Yeah, probably rushed out. Yeah, the coolest part was hearing the actors' voices doing all these extra scenes. Like... Jack Black going, it's too dark to shoot in here. Let's go someplace brighter and adding all this stuff. But if you beat the game and get over 250,000 points, as I understand it. Wow, it is an old game if they're tracking points. At the end of the game, you're playing King Kong against the airplanes. Mm -hmm. And if you've gotten that score and King Kong smacks down enough airplanes, here's what you mentioned earlier, Stuart. You jump to an alternate ending where you're Jack in a plane, shooting down the other planes and saving Kong, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you return Kong to Skull Island. Okay. Why couldn't they have done that? Well, I know why. We, we, we already talked about tragedy. Got it. Okay. But I do like that they had the alternate ending where you play as Kong, smack down the planes, and then you play as Jack grabbing a plane and shooting people around. Well, it would be disappointing if you played as Kong and and you still fell off the building. Like, <laughs> I want to win the game if I win the game. I don't want to end up dead on the pavement no matter what do I do. Well, you can find this game. It is on an abandoned wear site. So you can download the game, 5 gigabytes for free, and try it out. I tried it. It's not one I'm going to play. I got some in the name of the king and dungeon siege you bowl stuff i have to play i have to get you bola instead of king kong so i'll be doing that and uninstalling king kong but i tried it out and it's you know if you love this movie you may enjoy exploring it further in a pretty mediocre game no if, if you want king kong in the video game stick to rampage yeah, I don't think anyone loved this movie. Again, it's a tough movie to thoroughly love. I think that there is just so much bloat here. But there are things to love in it, and enough for me to say, okay. But you mentioned it. We are wrapping up our King Kong retrospective. Next week is the last one we're doing until November. We thought Kong vs. Godzilla was coming out in March, and then they pulled it, and they're putting out at Thanksgiving. So we're only going to do Kong Skull Island, and then we're going to take a break and go back to, yes, the video game retrospective. Yeah, there's a lot of pain coming my way. And one more Kong, Skull Island next week. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And listeners, thanks for coming on this trip to Skull Island with now playing The Eighth Wonder of the World.
Yeah, let him go. But he's going. He's going home. I think he's had enough of what we call civilization. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. It's no use. The show, it's over. It's done. I'm done. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Holy mackerel, what a show. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Word will get out. It always does. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Switch it on, like this, and you'll get them by matching. In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Wait till those candy asses in New York hear about this one. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. This island is just the beginning. There's more out there. What do you mean, more? This world never belonged to us. It belonged to them. The question is how long before they take it back. Kong is not the only king. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Do you suppose he knew he was saving my life? Do you suppose he knew he was helping us? Of course not. You want me to believe he was grateful? You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at NowPlayingPatron.com. I am a realist, and I need you. So I am going to be generous. I will let you go without a bit of trouble and with lots of cash. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. I'll give you another thousand to leave right now. You haven't given me the first thousand yet. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Might as well settle up. You gonna pay me? I'm not gonna stiff a friend. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. There was still some mystery left in this world, and we could all have a piece of it for the price of an admission ticket. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Well, it better be good after all this valley. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. She could be hysterical, so come on, follow me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm someone you can trust, I'm a producer. Believe me, I am on the level. No funny business. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Sure, no, I've been a big help. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. All in on Vic!
Everybody on back! Everybody on back! Now playing Credits Red by Brock. I can't tell when I'm talking or when I'm not talking. You're talking. Am I? Yes. I'm talking? Yes. Your mouth is moving. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. If you feel it, you say it. It's really very simple. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. You can't accuse me. You wasn't there. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. We must not panic. If there is one thing we cannot afford at this time, it is hysteria. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. You need to listen to us! We're not at war, Colonel. You're making a mistake. Your lies got my men killed. And you're going to get us all killed. Not our fight. Whose side are you on, Captain? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Why'd he do that? Climb up there and get himself cornered. The ape must have known what was coming. What does it matter? Airplanes got him. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. I got Enemy at the Gates, and I got King Kong. Enemy at the Gates? Yeah. That Russian movie? I thought there was Jude Law as a Russian. Enemy at the Gates, 2001 war film, yeah. Uh, or was it Ray Fiennes' brother? Joseph Fiennes and Jude Law. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Oh, it is Jude Law. All yeah, right. That's that's okay, I remember. That's a memorable yeah. one, clearly, as we struggle. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> now I kind of recall what? it, yeah. Does Peter Jackson see himself as this Jack White character and that he's struggling with the Jack, movie Jack system Black. to get Jack, his vision? Jack Black or Jack Denham? Not Jack White. Oh, did I say Jack White? You did say Jack White. <laughs> they, they, did, I, they just did a collab together. Jack oh. Ray. Um, <laughs> see how everything that you're reading has no bearing on the silly fantasy full of sea monsters that we're actually experiencing. I mean, it would be like... Hmm, let me see if I can come up with a comparison. It would be like trying to tell Superman and keep bringing up, uh, God, what's the, who's the philosopher that coined the term? Nietzsche. Yeah, well, it's not even really like that. I don't know. I'd have to work on that analogy. I was going to say Zack Snyder did whatever you're saying. Has yeah, never been he kind of did. I, so. I'm going I'm to move on. <laughs> we'll just skip that. Um, but I'll just say, I think I already made my point.